Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin, and my guest today is the British Indian journalist Mihir Bose. Over a 50-year career in journalism, Mihir has written about sport, business and social and historical issues for the Financial Times, the Evening Standard, the Irish Times and many, many others. He was LBC Radio's first cricket correspondent and the author of 37 books. <laughs> He's won the 1990 Cricket Society Silver Jubilee Literary Award for his History of Indian Cricket. His latest book is Dreaming the Impossible, the battle to create a non-racial sports world. Miha Verse, welcome to Monocle Reads. Thank you very much for having me. This book is absolutely timely and addresses something that we are all talking yeah. about at the moment. But it's addressing it in a way that really was unthinkable a few decades ago. Yes, this was not a subject that was discussed because everybody felt that this subject had been dealt with. You know, racism is in the past, we've done with it, you know, it's gone, let's not dwell on it, let's let's move forward. But as a result of which, A, it was buried, and B, the history and all the legacy and so on were not properly discussed. And you had, and as I go through in my book, you had players, black players, black footballers coming in through the 80s who were told, you know, don't talk about it if you're racially abused. And they had um, dreadful racial abuse. You know, just show with your skills on the football field, you know, bang the goals in, that'll be the answer. And with cricket, we are seeing now, as a result of what Asim Rafiq has said, that cricket also went through a period of great denial. And that is what is coming out. And and what I found fascinating, because I spoke spoke in this book not only to players, I spoke to administrators and uh, people in, in different walks of life involved with sport, is that the administrators are now saying, yes, there is racism. Yes, in some cases, uh, the, it is institutional racism, which we need to address. Mm. And all this has happened because of an American death, George Floyd, two years ago now. And because of the echoes of that dreadful uh, crime, we have suddenly started... I mean, in 50 years of journalism, I have not seen so much written on race in the sports pages. Mm. It is quite extraordinary. And it's also something that you experienced yourself. You tell us in the book about two awful experiences you had on trains... Would you would you go into that? Yes. What happened was I was then a football reporter for the Sunday Times, for whom I wrote for nearly 20 years. And the first one was I was returning from a Norwich versus Arsenal match, and I had persuaded the uh, sports editor, a great man, a visionary, to send not just one correspondent, but four correspondents to report from different aspects of the game and how different people and the season ticket holder, the chairman, saw it. Anyway, we're coming back. We jumped onto the train and packed with Arsenal supporters returning to London, and one of them saw me and started shouting, hit the coon over the head with a baseball bat and started chasing me down the train. I was um, flanked by two of my colleagues, thank goodness, and the moment he caught up with me, it was quite frightful. I was going through a whole group of very hard-faced supporters who I didn't know whether they would they would uh, respond to that. As he caught up with me, there was a policeman. As it happened, it was a black woman policeman, and he couldn't tangle with her. He was actually brought to trial and fined uh, £20 at the Norwich court. And the few weeks after that finished... 
I was returning from a match, Nottingham Forest versus Leeds um, from Nottingham. And first of all, this was, uh, you know, I'd filed my copy. By the time I was returning, I'd taken sort of a seven o'clock train. There's hardly anybody on the train, but there were a group of young boys who started ridiculing me, calling me Packy. Why wasn't I called Patel? How did I know anything about football? What did I think of Enoch Powell and all that sort of stuff? And then they warned me that Chelsea supporters were on the train. Chelsea had lost that day to Rotherham and uh, they were going to come in and beat me up. And they did come and uh, they turned the lights off and things like that. It, it, it really was very frightening. And they, sur- they, they surrounded me, jostled me about. But then they were having this debate about who was going to be the first to hit the swag. And as they were having the debate, fortunately, the train pulled into St. Pancras and um, a policeman came on. They shouted, Bill's coming, and they, they, they vanished. But uh, after that, for five years, I did not take a train reporting football matches. I took a car. I would drive and arrived very early, even before the gates had opened, so that I could park very near. What I worked out was going out was all right. It's coming back, so I needed to get in the car, and that was like my armoured vehicle bringing me back to safety. I'm afraid I wasn't very brave, so that's all I can say. I don't think it's a question of bravery at all. You touch on the book, as you were saying a little bit earlier, about how actually racism in sport is a generational thing, that older black players like uh, Watford's Luther Blissett, yes. uh, completely adopted the, the don't-see-colour mindset yes. and just get on with it, as suggested by their white managers. Yes, and also also suggested by their parents, many of whom, particularly with the black players, were from the Windrush generation who'd come here to the mother country, who had themselves faced discrimination, who felt that one shouldn't talk about it. You know, it was it was wrong that, you know, the people would think you have a chip on the shoulder. And, and this was true of many of the players, Luther Blissett, Chris Hewton, who's probably the most notable black manager we have. We have a great dearth of black managers, though there are many black players. And, uh, you know, he, he, he told me that you know, your parents have told you, be strong. And uh, his mother is Irish, his, his father is black. And all that came through. So also, they felt that to show any, any sign of uh, anger would be seen as a sign of weakness. That, you know, because they were the pioneers, remember. They were the first black players. And the idea that blacks could play football was actually not much accepted in the 70s. You know, oh, maybe the blacks can run very fast, but how can they play football? You know, the thing with football particularly is that it is considered a very special English sport. The English don't realise how universal it is. The British created all the sports we play and they haven't appreciated uh, what a universal thing they they have created and and with football they felt very very possessive how can somebody not of the right color come and play mm. and you talk also about racialized language about athletes stereotyping the way that people are perceived by audiences so i mean things like genetic advantage or yes, higher yes, athleticism yes. but also the opposite blacks can't swim absolutely i mean there was this theory and people i've talked to in the book uh, spoke to me frankly about it that they they had a fast twitch muscle and therefore a black player will run very quickly. And many of them said, because many of them had never met black players, except maybe they might see them in an athletic meeting, and they would always feel the black runner will beat a white runner, no question about it. So when the blacks first started playing football, many of them were put on the wings because they were quick. You know, they would they would beat anybody. 
and Ricky Hill, for instance, told me that he was one of the few midfielders. He wanted to play midfield, you know, the, control the game, be the creator and the hub of the team, that it was very difficult for him to convince enough people that he, as a black player, could be a midfielder. And the other thing about swimming was, yes, in fact, a, a, the head of a school at Luton, the former head, no longer the head, I'm talking of the, of the 80s now, told me that, you know, you don't see black swimming, do you? You know, they, they don't swim. And, you know, there was all this idea that their paws, you know, wouldn't take in water and things like that without realising the reason they don't swim is that they don't have facilities for swimming. You know, they're not brought up as young white kids at that time would have been taken by their parents to the swimming pool, by the school and so on. So I- immediately those those stereotypical thinking, it's a bit bit in cricket where when, when I, I didn't play cricket very well, but I had a journalist team, it was assumed that because of my Indian background, I must be a spinner. You know, that's what Indians do, you know, risky players and things like that. I think, I mean, all societies have st- stereotypical images. The problem we are dealing with is that if the dominant white society has that privilege, that, that means you're boxing people in. And then that person has to fight his way out of the box. And how does he fight his way out of the box? And how does the white person not feel that he is guilty? You know, I mean, I think we need to get away from this idea of guilt. To admit that there is racism doesn't mean that the white community must, must accept responsibility. No, an individual white may be racist, but that doesn't reflect on the entire community. I think that is one of the one of the barriers still to a certain extent that you know you don't you you deny it because by by accepting it you feel you are personally mm. responsible and I I don't see why you should I mean you know all communities have have uh, dark skeletons in their cupboard you know I uh, I grew up as a Hindu in India and there's a caste system which is terrible but I must recognize what happened but I can't feel guilty for what happened uh, when I wasn't there or what my ancestors did. And I think that is where we need to move forward to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you also, you this book is comprised of a lot of conversations that mm-hmm. you've had with, with various players and managers and so on. And you talk about how the lengths that some of them had to go to in order to play the game. So, for instance, Ricky Hill. Tell us tell us about his background. I mean, he, he hid his, his South Asian origins. Yes, absolutely. I saw Ricky Hill. I reported on matches at Luton, and which was a very, very diverse team, had a lot of black players. David Pleat was the manager. And this is a twin story. I didn't know that David Pleat was Jewish, because looking at him, I wouldn't have known. I only learned that much later. In fact, David Pleat didn't want to broadcast his Jewishness. And Ricky Hill, I didn't know, was of South Asian origin. Only recently, while I was writing the book, I came across it, because Ricky Hill's parents are from Trinidad. He and what he said was that he felt that he, he should not broadcast his South Asian origin. He, he wanted to be part of, um, if you like, the West Indian diaspora. So after long years, he, he now feels strong enough, brave enough to say, this is what my origin is, and I'm not ashamed of it. Sorry, I should say Rick, Ricky Hill's family, grandparents went to Jamaica, but they were of Asian origin, the same sort of Asian origin that V.S. Naipaul's uh, parents were, you know, the Nobel laureate. Um, but they went to Trinidad, most of the Indians who, who went and indentured laborers, which was a form of slavery, which came in after slavery, were taken to the West Indies, and his grandparents were taken to Jamaica. But he, I, I said to him, but you, 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 you know, to me, you look black. And he said, yes, and I, I did not want to talk about it. And it's only now, and that shows the journey he has made. I mean, 
mean, you know, Ricky Hill played for England, tried to become a manager in this country, didn't quite succeed, succeeded as a manager in America, still feels very um, bitter about the fact that he didn't get chances in this country, and now feels he can, he can broadcast his origins. And, you know, that shows a confidence that has come, but a confidence that has taken a long time to come. Mm. And and that shows what, what these players had to go through. And now, the modern players, the Raheem Sterlings of this world, the Marcus Rashford of this world, this is where we've moved on, would not feel that. Marcus Rashford, in fact, nutmegged um, Boris Johnson, not once but twice, on, on helping uh, school children and so on. Now, you know, that generation of Ricky Hill would never have had the courage and also never have had, if you like, Courage is probably not the right word, but would never have felt that they could go there because they would have felt that if they did that, they would be highlighting themselves. They would be broadcasting the fact that they are of a different colour. What has now happened is a new generation has come up which is saying, yes, we are of a different colour, we are of a different race, but, you know, you've got to accept that we are and look at our problems. I mean, even people like uh, very distinguished sporting players are like like Hamilton and so on are coming out and talking about race in a way they've never done. Mo mm. Farah I remember interviewing Mo Farah some years ago I must confess in that interview I didn't do a good enough job to discover that his real name was not Mo Farah <laughs> but then I I joined a whole group of uh, interviewers but Mo Farah never said anything about racism but yet since then he has said that he suffered from racism. There was There was this feeling that if you talk about racism, you then put yourself in a different compartment. You make the person, the white person, uncomfortable because they can't understand. They're not racist. They've never been racist to anybody and they can't understand how this can have happened. Mm. And then you go into this denial. No, no, it wasn't racism. When, for instance, I had that awful experience with with the Chelsea fans who roughed me up and so on, um, the Sunday Times, to his great credit, uh, wrote an article about it. And um, one of the responses was um, uh, from some readers saying, no, 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 the Chelsea fans roughed you up, not because of your race, but because you were traveling first class and they were traveling um, standard class. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, uh, this sort of denial is what we need to deal with because to admit there is racism, as I said, is not to admit that we are all racist or that things can't change. But to admit that certain things have happened and people are affected, and therefore, how can we address that? We can't address something unless you admit the truth of it. Mm. Why do you think things started to change? Why did people like Mo Farah suddenly feel they could speak out about it without it having a detrimental effect on their careers? First of all, Mo Farah was, has been successful, he's been knighted, and I think the atmosphere has changed. I think the fact that people like Rashford, Raheem Sterling and others have emerged, also I think it has helped, for instance, I, I give due credit to Gareth Southgate. It's a very interesting story. Gareth Southgate was brought up in a, in a, in a well-off uh, family. He wouldn't have known any blacks. Then he came to Crystal Palace, which, until um, Alan Smith and Steve Koppel came there, did not have any black players, though, of course, the, the club is situated in South London, surrounded by black players. And then when Southgate came for the first time in the team, he met black players. And since then, the journey he has made is remarkable. He has understood the problems of his black players. He has understood that when they say there is discrimination, it needs to be addressed. And a whole generation of white players have grown up who, for instance, when when um, the Premier League uh, resumed after the 
lockdown was lifted. They were the ones who led the fight to take the knee. And they said, we see, the previous generation of white players, A, didn't understand it. B, they couldn't work out why the crowd was uh, racially abusing. They had not experienced anything like that before. And they could not react. But this one, younger, having having heard and, and, and lived through different experiences, they realized that when the racial chants are being made against their fellow black players, it's being directed against the entire team, that they need to do something. And that has been a tremendous major development. Mm-hmm. You write about media and how a lot of this is actually perpetuated or indeed stopped by the way it's reported. Tell us a little bit more. Yes, I think the problem with the media is, and, and the first um, match I reported for the Sunday night, the first football match, was um, Chelsea versus Tottenham. And um, just before the match started, a season ticket holder tapped me on the back and said, uh, who are you reporting this for, the Sunday, for the, the South Hall Express? I, I, I said, no, Sunday Times. And he said, core blimey, Brian Glanville must have changed colour. And Brian Glanville was a legendary um, football correspondent of the Sunday Times. Now, he couldn't imagine that somebody brown, and this was 1978, I must have been one of the few brown faces in, in the ground. There were no black or, or brown players in uh, playing. And to him, this looked extraordinary. Why is this person of such a different colour in the stadium? But what is interesting is that day, the entire football press, apart from me, was white. Since then, for much of this 50 years, most of the press sports press has remained white. Now, this doesn't, of course, remotely make them racist. They're all, many of them are excellent journalists, have written very good articles on race and so on. But what has happened is diversity hasn't increased. And what I did in the book is I went and interviewed four journalists, Jonathan Liu, who's of Chinese origin and who's one of our leading writers, Barney Ro- Roney, Alison Rudd, and Jonathan Northcroft, who writes for my old paper, The Sunday Times. And People like, you know, Jonathan Northcroft and so on have said that the press hasn't moved on. It is still very white. One of the reasons is that in recent years, the media, the written media has declined. You know, when I joined, the written media was um, flourishing. New papers were coming out. The independence started. Today started things like that. You know, Internet hadn't been invented and so on. Now with the Internet and, you know, TikTok and all sorts of social media, people read fewer papers, papers finding it difficult to recruit, though the numbers are increasing. One must say there are more, you know, names I see on the sports pages which suggest that they are of different colour. But it has been a very, very slow process. And the media, the British media, and it's it's a wonderful media, it's been an honour for me to work for the British media to fool people for 50 years that I can write. Um, (laughs) But, you know, that media has been very, itself been very slow to change. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's... And that doesn't mean racism. They just, you know, I, I think what tends to happen is you give jobs to people you know and you don't know often people of a different colour, of a different race. You just don't know them. So you don't think of them as uh, people who, who, who can get jobs. I mean, uh, Barney Roney, who, who has Indian stock in him, his grandfather was of Indian origin, puts it very well. You know, to get into The Guardian, uh, he writes for The Guardian, very good writer for The Guardian, you know, you, you probably have to be very highly qualified, Oxbridge and so on, and, and, you know, Oxbridge tends to be still 
in that sense, white. Mm. I should stress that the book is also, it has a lot of personal stories, your own, but also other people's. You speak to so many different people and it gives us lovely little kind of vignettes about what's gone on in the world of sport in the last 50 years. The title, Dreaming the Impossible, the battle to create a non-racial sports world. Are we there yet? Have we created a non-racial sports world? Or how can it be achieved? We are not there yet, but we are moving, I think, in the right direction. You see, I am a great believer in the redemptive power of sport. Sport can bring people together in the way culture or music cannot. Let me explain. Culture, of course, is wonderful and so is music, but culture and music are uh, located within the society that that produce it. So the Western music is very different to Indian music or Chinese music. You know, you have to understand a bit of the culture to understand it. So, so would say the great paintings of the of the Western world are different to the paintings in in India or China. Whereas sport, because if you understand the rules, you know, as I, as I keep telling my friends, uh, many of them, I'm not being sexist. I hope females who that if you understand the offside rule, you will understand football, and you know, you don't need to know a single word of Spanish to understand that Lionel Messi is a great player. You know, <laughs> as long as you know the rules of football or or uh, that, um, you know, Stokes is, is one of the greatest batsmen that the game uh, may have produced. And therefore, sport can bring people together. And that is where I think sport can lead us into showing that what matters to adapt uh, those famous words of Martin Luther King is your ability, not the color of your skin. And I think we are moving to that because for the first time, people are saying, yes, there are problems. We will discuss it. We will talk about it. We will analyze it. We will, we will want to find out what can be done. And leading sportsmen and women are willing to come out and identify themselves. They are not any longer... Uh, I, I spoke to Ebony Rainford Brent, who, who for a long time didn't want to talk about it. But, you know, it, it led to this uh, dramatic documentary on Sky. She she cried in a Sky meeting about the fact that the, the racism that was there. She was very moved by watching the George Floyd video of his killing. And then she and Michael Holding did this amazing program on Sky where they spoke about the need to understand racism and how do you how do you cope with it how do you change it and for that we need a reassessment of history that the history that we have the universal history that we have is still history written by the Europeans yes the European achievement in history is tremendous but there is another history the history of the black and the brown people and that history needs to be brought in the black and the brown people know both their own history and the European history but the Europeans need to know the black and the brown Mm. history and that is happening slowly but it'll take some time we're not there yet but I think we I'm very optimistic and I think we have made tremendous Progress. And that needs to be accepted. That needs to be highlighted. We shouldn't all the time indulge in self-flagellation, saying, you know, how dreadful it is. No, it was dreadful. There are still dark areas that need to be looked into. But we are, I think, for the first time moving forward. And for that, the most important thing is not to be in denial. If there is a racist problem, you know, accept that there is a racist problem, analyze it and see what you can do. And by doing that, you are not yourself taking on the guilt. And that is what we need to, uh, the the world we need to come to. And we we are moving to that, I think. Dreaming the Impossible, the battle to create a non-racial sports world is by Mihia Bose and it's published by Arena Sport. 
You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer, Nora Hull, and researcher Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.